mobile homes actually have a lot of different materials that are used in building them compared to a regular stick-built house. For example, the drywall is thinner. The doors are all special sized. They're not standard 80 height doors. The windows are different sized. So you have to buy your materials through like a mobile home specific manufacturer and they're quite expensive. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Andrew Keel. Andrew is the owner of the Keel team and currently manages 14 manufactured housing communities across six states. In this episode, Andrew gives us an inside scoop on how to properly purchase and operate mobile home parks to maximize the profits on each asset. We'll be able to see the costs associated with operating a mobile home park and the amount of effort it takes to get it turned around. We'll also get some tips on what to do if you want to purchase your own mobile home park. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you want to know the secrets of how the top investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Yeah. My name is Andrew Keel and I'm a manufactured housing community investor. I started out investing in individual mobile homes uh, back uh, several years ago. I found a guy on YouTube. His name was Lonnie Scruggs, and he wrote a book called Deals on Wheels, where he, he would buy mobile homes in parks and then sell them on contract you know, for monthly payments to the end user. So I started doing that. I did it about 15 to 20 times around the uh, Orlando, Florida area where I was from. And I realized that the demand for these homes was just off the charts. I took a community owner out to lunch and he basically kind of shifted my mindset at that point. He said, hey, the real value is built in owning the land underneath of the homes and not the personal property that is the mobile homes. So he recommended that I start looking at, at raising capital to purchase mobile home parks, you know, the whole, the whole properties. And I went to the MHU boot camp with Frank and Dave. I went to a couple other, you know, little investor seminars on mobile home park investing and basically just went all in and I, w- I was just hooked. There's several reasons why I love the asset class. One of them is that it's partially recession resistant. Two, there's a crazy amount of demand for the product. The need for affordable housing is off the charts today in the US. And then the supply is limited and shrinking. Because there's a, a certain number of mobile home parks in the country, and about 10 to 20 of them are torn down every year and redeveloped to a new form of housing, whether it's multifamily or assisted living or something of the sorts. And not many are being built, maybe one or two that are being developed from scratch. And it's very hard to do so because the municipalities don't approve the zoning to be for a manufactured housing community. Another reason is that. You know, since we don't own the homes, we don't have to worry about, you know, like a typical landlord has to worry about the maintenance of the properties, the, the, you know, the squeaky door, the leaking AC unit, the refrigerator that's not working, the, 
you know, you name it, all of the maintenance requests that a typical landlord gets, we don't have to address those because we're just getting lot rent for the dirt underneath of their home. It's more scalable in that sense. But yeah, so I, I met a couple of passive investors at actually the MHU bootcamp that Frank and Dave do. It's a national bootcamp that they do in several cities across the U.S., I met some passive investors and I said, hey, I'm, I'm an active operator looking to you know do my first deal. I was cold calling, mailing letters, and I ended up finding a deal in Illinois that we were able to work the numbers out on and it made a lot of sense. So I reached out to the investors that I met with a business plan and a pro forma and said, hey, I, I think this makes sense. Would you guys be interested in investing and partnering with me? And they said yes. Since then, I've done a few more deals with them, and I've brought on other passive investors. We also started doing syndications now, where we raise money from a group of investors. And we now currently own 16 mobile home parks, which is about a 1,000 lots. And it's across seven states, mainly in the Midwest, and we're based out of Orlando, Florida. So it's been, a, been an awesome journey, and it's helped create financial freedom for myself and my family. So it's been a really big win for us. That's exciting. And like I mentioned to you before we started the show, I haven't had anyone talk about manufactured housing so far. And here in the Bay Area, that's something that we don't really talk about because that's not something very common here. Do you want to just break down what is manufacturing housing and why does it differ from, let's say, a traditional rehab? Sure. So manufactured housing, mobile home park, trailer parks, I'm sure you've heard all the stigma names assigned to these things. But a, a manufactured home is basically built in a location and then transported to the end location. So it's built, you know, in a factory, you're able to get more scale building it the same color carpet, the same flooring, same drywall, same everything so that you're able to build manufactured housing at the MHI conference. Ben Carson, the head of HUD stated that we can build manufactured housing on average for around $49 a square foot, where site built housing on average is being built for around $107 a square foot. So it's just a way more affordable way to build housing, which is a, a huge need in the U.S. right now. So manufactured housing is factory built, transported, installed on a location. I also own a, a transport and installation company. So the cost of transporting and installing these homes is relatively pretty expensive. You know, you can move a home a thousand yards away and it's still going to cost you three to five thousand dollars because you have to disconnect all the utilities rehook up the utilities. We have to block level, tie down, skirt it. There's footing site prep work that's required. So it's not as mobile as it seems to be. You know, it's not like an RV where you can pick up and go in the middle of the night. These mobile homes, 98% of them never leave the spot where they're initially installed because of that cost of transport. So let's talk about actually finding lots. So you're based in Orlando, but you said your mobile home communities are based all over the Midwest. So how are you finding these lots to purchase? A lot of it is cold calling owners of previous parks that, that they own currently. Also mailing letters. We also go through brokers and there's a website, mobilehomeparkstore.com that posts listings on there. So that's, that's how we find these deals, you know, a variety of different ways. And then once we find them, we do extensive due diligence because you know, utility infrastructure is very big and due diligence on these types of assets is very, very important to make sure that you don't make a mistake that could cost several hundreds of thousands of dollars pending the condition and, and replacement cost. 
So what are some of those mistakes that could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars? For example, sewer infrastructure. You know, if you have a lagoon or a wastewater treatment plant on location, those are very expensive items that if they do go wrong and the EPA gets involved, there's a story that I've been told from Frank Rolf actually that teaches the MHU boot camp uh, where he tells me there was a guy that had a bought a property, didn't do the, the necessary due diligence, and it had septic tanks. And some of the septic tanks were leaking. And he was getting fined by the EPA $10,000 per day that those septic tanks were leaking. So it was like a major situation that could bankrupt a business, you know, very easily. Also, wastewater treatment plants, you know, those can cost upwards of half a million dollars to replace. So if you buy a property that has a wastewater treatment plant that's going bad, it could be very, very expensive to replace that infrastructure. So we do a lot of due diligence. We get third-party reports to come in and analyze all of that before we move forward with an acquisition. So does that mean you wouldn't want to buy a property with a wastewater treatment? Yeah, ideally, yeah. You know, we, we want to buy properties that have public utilities, city water, city sewer. The majority of our properties are, you know, municipal water, municipal sewer. However, we do own properties with septic tanks and we do own one property with a well. And a well is another thing, you know, there's just more expense involved because of the testing requirements, because of the filtration process. And, you know, you own now the well, the whole house, you got to heat the house, the, where the well is, where all the filtration process is and the chlorination process takes place. You got to make sure it doesn't freeze in the winter. So there's just additional costs that go into that. And then you also have to compensate a, an operator to come and visit the property a couple times a week to take samples and make sure that the well is not contaminating the water supply for the entire property. So how do you evaluate what a good deal is? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. Our criteria has evolved from when we first started. At this point, we look to cluster properties around our existing properties because we get economies of scale with travel costs, et cetera. And then we also look for properties that have over 50 lots and preferably public utilities. And there's several different other factors like the age of the homes, the age of the infrastructure, the metro area, the population, the access to a Walmart, Home Depot, bigger box stores like that, and also good employment. A lot of that you know, is taken into effect when we do our due diligence and decide if we're going to either you know, move forward with the acquisition or if we're going to kill the deal. In terms of numbers, like, are you guys buying a uh, you know, dollar per lot or cap rate metric? I'm not actually sure. How do you evaluate if something's worth buying or not? It's a value of the income. It's based off of a cap rate. The cap rates that we're typically buying at are anywhere from eight caps up to 12 caps, which was basically a number valuing the net operating income of the property. And a good property when we started would be worth 10 times earnings, which would be the net operating income times 10 would be like a good value. However, it's gotten more competitive and especially in good metros, you may pay an eight cap for that same property now because uh, of the competition and so forth. So you're going to be paying like an eight cap on day one, but you also have like an eye to do some improvements to make that higher than what you bought it for? Exactly. Yes. So buy it uh, at an eight cap. However, we raise enough money initially to go in and fill 14 vacant lots and put homes on them and get those occupied. And we know in the back of our head that, hey, an occupied lot is worth $35,000. 
in terms of asset value. So we'll then increase the value of the asset and then as quickly as possible, refinance, get some really good debt options. Uh, there's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. There's other really, really great non-recourse debt options, 30-year fixed rate debt that we try to, to shoot for when we refinance and then pull out all of our investors' capital, pay that back, and then just cash flow the asset for long term. That's our business model. And so how much do these lots usually cost? It, it really depends, you know, based on the location. But typically, I would say somewhere between ten dollars and $30,000 per lot. So in like a 100-lot community, you just take that times 100? It, correct. In like a really good location. I mean, even in like the, the Bay Area, uh, you know, a mobile home park there is going to go for a lot more than a park in Upland, Indiana, for say, based off of the lot rent, the income the property will produce, and just the value of the land. So do you guys actually purchase the actual manufactured houses? Like you said, you have 14 vacant ones. Do you replace them with new ones or do you just repair the one that's already there? Yeah. So a lot of the times we want to buy properties that are majority tenant owned homes. Of a tenant owned home, the stickiness means like the, the length of time a tenant's going to stay there. So the turnover rate's only like four to five percent per year. Where like on an apartment complex, turnover could be 30 to 40 percent per year where you're, you're bringing in new tenants because old ones are moving out. Well, in a mobile home park that's all tenant-owned homes, you know, you're only going to have about 4 to 5% turnover. So that's our goal. However, we do own some of the homes and we put them on a, a rent credit program where we're trying to get them to be an owner. They just pay a little bit more than lot rent every month and they're basically paying off their home in monthly installments. So how much would you be charging them for a, a mobile home? Yeah. So to buy the mobile home, usually we charge them around $500 a month. And of that, probably two fifty to three hundred dollars will be lot rent, and then the additional would be paying towards the principal on their home loan. And then, uh, what is the total amount that's due for the structure? Usually around ten to fifteen thousand on some of our older homes. On the brand new ones, closer to twenty-five to thirty-five thousand. That's super affordable. It's like a lot cheaper than a single-family home. It is. It is, and a lot of you know landlord and other investors look at the one percent rule. And if you look at bringing in five hundred to five fifty a month on a property that costs fifteen thousand dollars, it's a it's a pretty good spread there. And so, what is a typical rent for just having their property on your lot? Lot rents across the country are around three hundred dollars a month. Again, every metro is different. In the middle of Indiana, three hundred a month is a good price. In the middle of Arkansas, it would be probably a quite a bit less. If you're in Austin, Texas, you may be paying $600 a month for lot rent. You know, it's just area specific. And then the tenants are the one paying for all the utilities, right? Correct. In our properties, they are. When we buy properties, we actually look at value-add options, which would include the present owner actually paying for the watering and including that in their lot rent. And then when we take over that property, we would sub-meter the property and bill the tenants individually for their utility usage. But do you guys have any costs that you guys pay for, like public trash or something like that? We actually bill back for trash as well. Uh, but you know, you're going to have insurance, taxes, maintenance, et cetera, that are involved in your costs. But typically, our expense ratio is around 30 to 40% of the gross revenue. And where does that money go to again? You're going to have you know, your taxes, insurance, you know, maintenance costs. We also have an on-site manager 
that's in location that'll help with collections and being our eyes and ears on the property, kind of telling us what's going on and who's moving out, who, if there's a rehab going on, they're managing contractors, things like that. So that's where the bulk of our expenses lies right there. So do you pay for the property manager or do you just give them like a discounted rent? We give them a free lot rent, plus we give them a stipend per month. It's a very part-time position. It's it's less than 20 hours a week usually. But yes, we do pay them and then they also get free lot rent in our communities. And are you collecting rents through like an e-pay or are they having you mail checks every single month? We actually use PayLease. It's hooked up through our software that we use, which is called Rent Manager, which tracks and invoices all of our tenants every month. And PayLease, they can pay with cash pay where they can go to like a Walmart or a 7-Eleven and pay with cash and it'll chart that in Rent Manager automatically. Or they can go and pay online, set up ACH or pay with a credit card all online and the end fees are then passed on to the tenant as well. So they have several ways they can pay and we keep it that way. We also do accept checks and money orders and the on-site manager would be the one collecting those and depositing them for us. And so who are the tenants that are moving into your properties? Like, are they considered like middle class or working class? Yeah, working class, blue collar families is, is really the, the broad majority of our tenant base. And do you guys increase the rents every single year or is it kind of like a fixed thing that we just live on? It depends based off the market rents. You know, every year we'll do a study and look at all the communities around us and see where we are in terms of the total lot rent that we charge and what we provide for that, which would include, do we have a playground? Do we have other amenities that we include in our lot rent? And we just compare it to market and make sure that we are keeping up with the market rents charged. So I know for a lot of multifamily syndicators, one of the value-add plays that they do is they go inside each of the units and they renovate it to so that they can increase the rents to you know higher market rents. What's your guys' play for value adds for a mobile home community? Sure. So one thing in a lot of mobile home communities is there's a lot of just deferred maintenance, which would be, you know, they're not trimming the trees, they're not cleaning up the property, they're not taking care of the entranceways. So when we come in, we do some landscaping, new signage, new street signs, do some tree trimming and some other improvements to ultimately make the community a better place and a safer place to live. And that's what we pride ourselves on as being a a safe solution for affordable housing. So when you do something like that, it makes the tenants more secure and I guess they want to move in more? Yeah, it ultimately is adding value to the property. And, you know, we also base a big portion of our value add on influxing new homes and filling vacant lots. So it's not just on CapEx improvements, which would be like new signage, et cetera, but that does play a big role into it. You know, maintenance is important, keeping the the grass mowed and the snow plowed, you know, it makes our tenants' lives easier. But a big part of our value add is just increasing the number of rentable units because when we buy properties, usually they're around 65 to 75% occupied and we aim to get them to 95% or above. So do you guys prefer to purchase new mobile homes or do you guys just repair the existing ones that are on site? We do a little bit of both and the market will determine which we go with. You know, we put up test ads of used homes and we put up new homes and the new homes obviously cost a little bit more and whichever test ad performs better, you know, we'll go with that option or we may diversify and go with a little bit of each. You know, new homes, when we buy them, obviously you're going to have some debt on those and they cost more. So you're not going to get as much 
initial bang for your buck until you know you can sell that home off and get it to a tenant owned home but the used homes you know a lot of those just need some TLC uh, but they may be 40 years old you know so there's a lot of you know maintenance that goes into rehabbing those and bringing those back online how much do you pay for a new home and then where do you even buy new manufactured homes yeah so we pay usually around $35,000 for a new home and we've bought a lot through legacy homes, but there's other programs like 21st Mortgage and Clayton Homes. They have a great program. In terms of used homes, you know, that's something that we can get online and try to find homes available or repossessed homes and try to get some better deals that way. That's so funny. So there's like a storage of repossessed homes just chilling. I don't even go to the warehouse or something. <laughs> I think they're more so on site. And every month I get a list, you know, I, that we can go see those homes that are like foreclosed you know, mobile home, basically. And we can go inspect them and place a bid. And then the winning bid, you know, we'll have access to be able to move that home either to their community or private land. Great. So it seems like uh, investing in your strategy is great because you don't have to worry about anything really inside the home. You're mostly dealing with the community itself, right? So the lots and the utilities and the, the lawn maintenance so what are some of the downsides of investing with your strategy? With our influx and bringing in homes, we do end up owning several of the homes that we are selling on contract to our end tenants. So there is going to be some maintenance in that, that stage there. Uh, also, dealing with contractors is a lot different compared to multifamily and you know, new developments. Contractors, usually the good ones, either they're really busy and the last thing they want to work on is mobile homes. So when we are trying to either rehab mobile homes or do some work in our property, we do have some difficulty finding good help that is consistent. You know, usually it's more of a handyman than an actual general contractor that we're able to hire. So usually when we buy a property and we're going through that stage, someone from my team will move on site to the property and facilitate managing the contractors and finding handyman to rehab the homes. And then also finding used home inventory and bringing those in and even new home inventory and bringing those in. You're going to have to work with transporters. You're going to have to work with installers. You're going to have to work with plumbers, electricians, HVAC, you know, contractors, carpenters to build steps. There's just a lot of you know, moving parts there. So that is one of the hardest parts of the business to do remotely. So we do have someone during our influx of you know, when we're increasing occupancy, we'll have someone move on site to facilitate those projects. And then once the property is stabilized, it'll be a lot easier to manage remotely. So how come contractors don't want to work on mobile homes? Uh, house is a house, right? <laughs> you would think, but mobile homes actually have a lot of different materials that are used in building them compared to a regular stick-built house. For example, the drywall is thinner. The doors are all special sized. They're not standard 80 height doors. The windows are, are different sized. So you have to buy your materials through like a mobile home specific manufacturer and they're quite expensive. The cost for materials on mobile homes are a little bit more expensive because they have to come from a certain supply house and you know a lot of contractors don't want to have to take that extra step to quote a job because of the extra steps they have to take to get the materials from a different supplier versus just a Home Depot or a Lowe's that they're used to going to. How can someone in California, like in the Bay Area, get into purchasing mobile home parks? The best way I think to get started would be to either partner with a operator that's already doing it. 
uh, whether that would be you know a limited partner in a syndication where they could passively invest and then watch the operations as they progress, or partnering as a as a JV partner. I've done that before, where someone has found a deal, they've brought it to me, and then we've partnered on the deal together, where I, I handle the operations and they would handle a slight part of the asset management and kind of training them that way, or getting involved. And I would recommend attending that MHU bootcamp that I attended. That's a great way to learn about not only finding good deals, but also managing parks and then go out and get your hands dirty and get started. That's some great advice. So since you've been doing this for a while, do you have any stories of any mistakes that you've done in the past and lessons learned from them? Man, the one big mistake that I made my first year is we didn't winterize and make sure that our water lines were insulated and heat taped on some of our water risers. And we own properties in the Midwest. I'm from Florida. We don't have this problem. But a lot of our water lines cracked, the meters busted, and froze You know, when the temperatures got below freezing. We, we had some really big plumbing bills that we had to take care of. So now every year, every fall, we have a plumber go through our properties and make sure that the water lines are covered, insulated well, that was one mistake I learned the hard way. That's interesting because didn't you buy this park from someone else in the past? And didn't they have their pipes winterized in the past too? We do. And, and on a lot of the vacant lots, usually when you winterize it, you can go put some insulation around the water riser and put like a bucket over the top of the water riser to ensure that it's covered. But kids throughout the year will come and take the buckets off and put rocks down in the water crock there and things just weren't prepared for the first freeze. So it's just something you have to look at every year. And, you know, we make sure we do that now. Got it. So it's not something that you can just do once and forget about it. It's like every year you have to watch out for it. Every year, every fall, definitely have someone, whether it's a handyman or a plumber, walk through your property, look at the water lines and make sure that they are winterized and ready for below freezing temperatures in locations. Obviously, you wouldn't have to do that in Arizona, Florida, et cetera. But in, in locations that do get that icy climate, it's, an, it's a necessity. That's funny because I told you earlier that I invest in properties in Florida. And that's because I was scared of the snow, right? I didn't know what it's like to own properties where there's a lot of snow. And hearing your, waters, your water lines burst is one of those issues I didn't want to deal with. Yeah, it's expensive, you know, because then now you have a big water bill. And also to get the repair fixed is expensive because a lot of times you're looking at having to dig the riser down to the underground main and get it reconnected. So something I we learned the hard way and now every year we make sure to take that precautionary measure. Smart. And so earlier you mentioned that when you have a new community that you're trying to stabilize, you usually send one of your team members over to, I guess, hang out for a while. How big is your team now and how long do you usually send them there to live on site? Sure. So we have about 35 employees, and that includes the on-site managers. Usually right after acquisition, they'll go on-site for a period of two to three months just to establish new management, new systems for depositing rents and handling violations and those types of things. And then in addition to that, they will handle the projects. You know, So we're getting ready to close next Thursday on a property in Iowa, and one of my employees is going to move on-site for three months and basically facilitate hiring new management and setting up new systems, making sure the tenants start taking care of their lots, enforcing violations and things like that. And then once that's set up and we have hired a good on-site manager, our job will become much easier and it'll be much easier to manage remotely. And then just visit once a quarter. We do a surprise visit. We don't announce it. 
And then we just show up and see how the on-site manager is taking care of the property. And so earlier we'd mentioned that manufactured housing does have a stigma to it, usually because it is usually lower income. Have you had any problems with bad tenants or like gangs or something like that in your communities? Yeah, so we do have some C minus grade properties and there is that huge stigma around mobile home parks. One of the big questions I get a lot from investors is, you know, hey, how do you manage collections? Collections is just a nightmare every month. And when I tell them that 95% of our tenants pay on time every month, they're surprised. But we do have to work for that final 5%. And that's where you come into contact with working with local attorneys and so forth to go through the eviction process. But 95% paid on time. So your debt service ratio is covered and then some with your 95%. Your remaining 5%, you know, you're just trying to trying to beat the averages. But yeah, we do have some properties that when we purchased them, you know, the previous owner was not enforcing background checks and income verification and, and landlord checks and things like that. So we did have to do some turnover where we'd have to evict some tenants and move some new tenants in. But we use top of the line background check nationwide and we, we verify income and we, we need to have a landlord reference to verify how they treated the last place that they were living. So those are really big things that we do to try to prevent a turnover based off of non-payment or not taking care of the property, et cetera. And how do you go about evictions in a mobile home park? Because you only own the land, but you don't own the actual structure. That's a great question. That's a great question. I, I think you might be surprised by the answer. It is different per state, but typically, like in Illinois, for example, we will evict the tenant, and that process takes around 30 days to evict them from the property. And if they own the home, then what we will do is we will file for abandonment on the trailer and basically evict the mobile home from the property. And that process can take another 30 days. And after that 30-day period, then there is another probably, it depends, but about 15-day period where then we can take over ownership of the home and fix it up and resell it. So that's a process that we would go through, but we do try to stay away from that at all costs. We do cash for keys and other techniques to try to shorten the time frame when we do have a turnover issue. And what is your final exit strategy? Our final exit strategy is we want to buy and hold these for the cash flow. You know, we're able to get our investors 20% plus returns right now and we don't have a definite sale date on any of our syndications. You know, we want to buy these and hold them long term, you know, as they appreciate. We really feel that since the supply, meaning the, the 40,000 mobile home parks in the country, since the supply is shrinking, the value of these assets is going to continue to rise. So we're really excited about that. And um, we'd like to continue to acquire properties and eventually own over $100 million in asset value. That's cool because most syndicators are in like a five to seven year timeline. Like they want to just buy it, basically rehab it and then sell it in five to seven years and get some cash out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're more long-term kind of like Warren Buffett. You know, we want to buy these things and hold them long-term, let them appreciate, pay down the debt and just cash flow them. So our investors have been happy with that thus far. And we're slowly building our portfolio with good quality assets that can sustain the, the test of time. So what are some tips that you have for our listeners who want to get more into mobile home communities? One tip that I would advise them to do is to go buy the book Deals on Wheels by Lonnie Scruggs. 
and do a Lonnie deal first, before you even look into communities, do a Lonnie deal where the book basically walks you through a process of how to find a mobile home in a park, work with the park management to fix the home up and then resell it on contract. You know, try to do that and see how you like that process and see if you like the returns that you're able to create. And if that is a win for you, then take the next step and go to the MHU bootcamp with Frank and Dave, attend that. That's a huge educational seminar. Three days, you actually, you know, walk through a mobile home park with Frank and he's a wealth of information. I think he's the, the fifth largest mobile home park owner in the country and he has a, a ton of knowledge about the industry. So attend that. And then if you still like it, you know, I would say start cold calling and building a broker network to try to acquire some of these properties. And since you've been doing this for a while now, is there something that you know now that you wish you knew when you first got started? That's a great question. Um, one of the things I wish that I knew when I first got started is some of the financing options that are available through agency debt. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac has really good non-recourse debt options. And I would advise anyone interested in getting into the business to research the criteria that those agency debt providers require before they will lend on a property because there's occupancy percentage requirements, there's number of park-owned home requirements, there's curb and gutter requirements, off-street parking requirements, and then base your buying criteria off of what they require because you'll be able to get better debt on these assets for the long term. And obviously, the better the debt, the better the cash flow, the better everything will be. So that would be my advice. Is it the same criteria as multifamily structures or is it different from mobile home parks? It's, it's very different. It's very different than multifamily. I mean, it's, I guess it's a similar process in terms of underwriting and so forth and financial backing and the whole underwriting process. However, it's more based on mobile home park specific numbers, right? Like the number of park owned homes versus the number of tenant owned homes. They do a lot of research into the infrastructure of the property, the utility infrastructure, because you, you know they're basically partnering with you for the long term. So they're doing a lot of research on that. But obviously, it's the best debt available for this asset class and for multifamily. So it's worth the extra research. Do you happen to know some of those numbers off the top of your head? Uh, I know one, like it has to be 80% occupied or more. Or they won't lend on it. Uh, I know this; it's changing. You know, their their criteria is is constantly changing. But I know that at one point they wanted the number of park owned homes to be less than twenty percent, and they prefer you have paved off street parking available uh, because one of the deals that we were trying to refinance a property that we own through Fannie Mae, they actually declined it because of the off street parking, and because I had less than two years of man- managing manufactured housing. So if once I got over two years, they would do the refinance with us. But since the operators had less than two years of operating experience, they, that was one of their reasons along with the off-street parking. So there's a lot of different quirks to it, but it's definitely worth it in the long run. Is it still the same in terms of $1 million of debt minimum and like a 1.2 DSCR? I think it's 1.25 debt service ratio. But yeah, I, I think they do have a small loan program that, that is a minimum of a million. But again, if all the, everything else on the deal is perfect and the deal is 900000 I think they still do the 900000 loan amount. But I'm not an expert. I'm not a loan broker. So I would recommend contacting a group like Eastern Union to get some tips on 
you know, how to qualify your property for agency debt. And you typically don't buy a property with agency debt, right? That's when you refinance it to something long-term. How are you acquiring your properties in the first place? So in our properties, we use regional banks for the initial acquisition. Then we improve the asset, increase the occupancy, increase lot rents, increase the infrastructure, and then refinance through agency debt. But there are ways to acquire communities as long as they meet the criteria and the the numbers in terms of occupancy. There are ways to acquire properties using agency debt as well. Uh, Do you mind sharing your terms for your regional banks? Yeah, typically they're 25-year amortization. They'll do a five-year fixed. And then right now, interest rates just dropped. It's about 4.75 interest rate. You know, but that is recourse debt. And our usual turnaround time is, is way less than the, the five years. So we, we will refinance, you know, well before then. And no prepayment penalty? It depends. You know, some small banks will require prepayment penalties and some won't. The deal that we're closing on next Thursday has no prepayment penalty, which is pretty awesome. And are these communities you're buying above that $1 million threshold? Yeah, they are. Uh, if someone were to do a smaller park, let's say 600000 or so, what do you recommend for them? I would definitely recommend going with a regional bank, a bank, small town bank that's near the property and seeing what terms they would offer. Again, it's going to depend on what financials, tax returns and liquidity and credit score of the, the operator. But I think you can get some pretty good debt on a, on a smaller asset. Has anyone ever given you a hard time for not living locally? Only on my first park that I purchased. Uh, we got some debt from a local bank and... I did have some other multifamily rentals and single family rentals at the time, but they were pretty keen on making sure that I had experience managing uh, real estate, multifamily real estate before they would, you know, lend the funds to someone that lives five states away. But that was one of the better deals that we actually have done to date. So it, it did work out and the bank was very happy with the way that the refinance took place. How did you get above that objection? Like if you're trying to acquire a property and you live five states away, like when I try to do it, they just said, no, they just wouldn't give it to us. Yeah. On my first deal, I called like literally 40 banks. You know, it wasn't just one call because you, you call the banks, then you got to get to the loan officer, the commercial loan officer, and then you got to talk to him and, and get his approval, send him all the documents. So it wasn't like a, a quick process. You know, I definitely had to, had to chew on it a little bit, go to several different local banks, go to regional banks all through St. Louis. I called like every single bank. And then I ended up having two banks that were interested in doing the deal. And I had them sharpen their pencil on their term sheets. And then we went with the better option. So my advice would be, hey, don't give up just because you got declined by one. Just keep calling. Good advice. Call more banks and someone will eventually say yes. So are there any last tips that you think we should know? Or maybe some question that I didn't ask you? Um, I guess the, the main thing is, is that mobile home parks can be a very profitable industry you know, there's this hype around the industry right now of how passive the the asset class is, but there there is a large operation side of the business that is is not easy. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science, but it's follow through that's important. You know, a lot of these assets that we're buying are from operators that took their foot off the gas and haven't been managing the properties well. Thus, we're able to buy them at a discount because of their lack of of good management. Not saying that every property we buy is like that, but usually we're buying from you know baby boomers that have gotten older and they just have gotten tired and they haven't been you know working the asset as hard as our young management team does. So there is operations to it that are necessary, 
it's not rocket science, but it is going to be more work than it's going to be more work than planned. But once it's set up and stabilized, it is a, a very nice asset to to hold on to. Very nice. So thank you so much for your time, Andrew. And how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, if people are interested in investing with me, uh, you know, whether it be a JV deal or a syndication, I would recommend checking out my website. That's keelteam.com. That's K-E-E-L-T-E-A-M.com. And set up a consult with me. Let's chat on the phone and see if we can work a deal together. All right, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing everything that you know about mobile home parks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Sean. Cool. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Investing in manufactured housing communities differs from a traditional rental because you don't have to take care of the structure. You only need to worry about the land and the utilities. Mobile home parks also traditionally have higher cap rates and the homes themselves are relatively inexpensive. If you want to do it right, get someone on your team to live on site or near the asset for about a month while it stabilizes to set up your local boots on the ground team and train them with your standard operating procedure. If you want to start investing in mobile home parks, find an experienced operator and be a limited partner. Split up the roles and get involved or join a bootcamp. Talk to some lenders and focus your buying criteria on what lenders will give you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.